1: Sometimes that shark looks right at you, right into your eyes. And the thing about a shark is he's got lifeless eyes, black eyes, like a doll's eyes. When he comes at you, he doesn't even seem to be living, till he bites you. And those black eyes roll over white, and then, and then you hear those terrible, high-pitched screaming. The ocean turns red, and despite all your pounding and your hollering, those sharks come in and they rip you to pieces, chief.
0: Is that the actor
1: Robert Shaw? Uh, that is. Uh, goodbye, Mr. Shaw. Thank you very much for uh, joining us from the grave. Very nice.
0: Very nice.
1: Um, hello and welcome to another episode of Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie brought to you by Killer Podcasts, an evergreen Podcasts network. I'm the titular Sean.
0: And I'm the very titular Carrie.
1: It's the show that takes you inside the unbelievable, the unexplainable, the macabre, and the bizarre and tries to find an answer, and yes, Caroline, that was uh, at least a few lines of dialogue delivered by Robert Shaw as the uh, the immortal Quint, well, not so immortal, in Jaws.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think we're going to get a copyright strike for that one. It was so spot on.
1: Because it's what you, you can... It's, ob- it's like it I, was
0: ripped from the film. Yes,
1: I put it right in from the film, so so we might get in legal, legal trouble there. <laughs> Um, but, but, you know, any tangles with the Shaw estate aside, the reason I started with that clip, Caroline, uh, is because
0: of yourself, (laughs) that
1: (laughs) quote, that quotation, that beautiful performance Mm. is, uh, the, in that scene, Quint is describing his experience aboard the USS. Well, after the sinking off board, off board, the USS Indianapolis. And that is the topic of our story today. And I think Jaws is a very appropriate place to start. Uh, Both because Jaws, with obviously that monologue, dramatic monologue from Quint in the middle of the film, um, reignited interest in the disaster uh, after the movie came out. uh, But also because Jaws was definitely inspired partly by the Indianapolis disaster. Like Uh, the
0: original book?
1: Uh, Yeah. Yes, and not only because Quint was there, obviously, but some of the imagery, we'll get to it, but some very specific imagery that Steven Spielberg uses in his movie is ripped directly from accounts from this disaster.
0: Well, he is a noted World War II nerd.
1: Um, And that is one of several sort of disaster movies that the people who lived through the Indianapolis disaster... Experienced or survived. It's like Roland Emmerich is making three movies all at once here.
0: Wow, we're going back to our Patriot pop from last week.
1: Yeah, really. Yeah, two two Emmerich mentions in two weeks. Carrie yeah, it's is a dream. Carrie I... is a Twitter.
0: <laughs> Listen, I, it's it's a guilty pleasure. Not even that guilty. I enjoy I enjoy those disaster movies.
1: Uh, in our Titanic series, we covered sort of the horror of being aboard a ship that's going down. Mm -hmm. and that's one kind of a disaster movie, like the movie Titanic, for example. Mm -hmm. Poseidon Adventure, that kind of thing.
0: Um, Poseidon Misadventure, more like.
1: You've got your survival stories, like your Castaway or alive. We talked about those Uruguayan rugby players. Everest. Not not Brazilian soccer players, thank you very much. Mm -hmm. Uh, Everest, yes, you've got that kind of a disaster story, and that's happening as well, attached into this one. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, And then, of course, you have your Jaws story.
0: I love Jaws. I think it's one of my top five movies.
1: Well, Jaws taps into the real terror that sharks are capable of instilling. They're just these perfect predators. And, um, well, especially in big groups, there's, there's just about nothing scarier. So... Uh, this is a story that takes place during World War II, but it's not really a war story as much as it is a, the most horrible disaster that could have befallen the people who went through this.
0: Yeah. Just on top of the one thing on top of another. And Get, that's, it just got worse.
1: And that's the story we're going to tell today. So, Indianapolis was a United States Portland-class cruiser. And what does that mean? Well, it was a type of heavy cruiser in use during World War II. Uh, it was about seven to eight hundred feet long. Portland class.
0: It really w- it was into like vegan uh, food and
1: uh, yeah, it never wore
0: shoes. Really artsy.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Slight drug problem. If I'm being honest.
0: Wow. Um, it had.
1: It was called a heavy cruiser because it had these big ass guns. You know, <laughs> suns out, guns out. 8-inch guns that it could use to pound enemy ships, planes, and beach defenses.
0: So would you be considered a Portland?
1: Oh, because of my big guns? Because of
0: your big old guns. Hell
1: yeah. Uh, I Actually, just because of my uh, volume displacement, I think. <laughs> I might get into the heavy cruiser class. <laughs> um, which, that's an area where Indianapolis was actually... It was originally classified as a light cruiser because it was pretty light and had thin armor. It was pretty small. But then uh, they ended up calling it heavy because they could use it like a heavy cruiser because it had these big guns. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was built during the interwar period, right there in between World War One and II. Uh, launched in 1931, which means it had some light duty for a couple of years as it hosted the president a few times in his cabinet once, um, in between scouting tours and state visits in South America, and, and that kind of thing. The kind of things that warships do in between wars. Hmm. But Indianapolis was on the front lines basically as soon as you possibly could be the moment the U.S. was vaulted into World War II. Because on December 7th, 1941, Mm. Indianapolis was doing exercises in the Johnston Atoll about 860 miles from Hawaii when Pearl Harbor was attacked. Mm. And so she actually joined the unsuccessful search for the Japanese carrier that was responsible for that attack. And for the following three years, Indianapolis would bombard Japanese fleets and installations around the Pacific and lead assaults on tiny little island outposts and airstrips and just generally harass Japanese shipping and supply lines, Mm -hmm. Uh, which is what a Pacific fleet did for those three years. In 1945, she was used to support the key beach landing at Iwo Jima. You've seen the guys with the flags. Yes, as well just as, the
0: one flag, actually.
1: As well as the massive and bloody invasion of Okinawa, where on March 24th, Indianapolis and the rest of its unit turned those big guns on the island of Okinawa, and the pre-invasion shelling continued for a week. Jesus. As enemy aircraft intermittently would attack the uh, American ships, kamikaze attacks, planes just crashing into the decks, taking down ships around you uh, as you're just... I mean, they're just pouring, again, eight-inch shells into this uh, uh, town.
0: So they're shooting from the water. Yep.
1: You, you've, you've got your sort of um, artillery bombardment. And the nice thing about ships is you can move that, you can do that from the water, and you can just mm-hmm. come come right up to the beach and, and bombard for a couple of days and soften everybody up before you send the troops in. Mm. Um while all those kamikaze attacks were happening, Indianapolis actually shot down six planes and damaged two, helping to defend its fellow ships. And then on March 31st, the day before the invasion was set to start, lookouts aboard Indianapolis saw a Nakajima KI-43 Oscar fighter emerging from the morning fog and turning into a vertical dive toward the bridge. Hmm. Uh, so they had 20 millimeter machine guns along with those big cannons and those were immediately turned to try and shoot the plane down. But 15 seconds or so later, it was right above the ship. and the pilot released his bomb 25 feet above the deck <sighs> before he crashed his plane into the sea. So this m- suicide Probably mission. yeah, and probably an attempt to crash into the ship as well as dropping the bomb. But
0: uh, Well, I think they did enough.
1: Yeah, getting it... Yeah, sure. But uh, that was the end of the day for that pilot, certainly. Uh, the bomb was almost miraculously, almost hilariously ineffective. It crashed right through the deck, and then through the mess hall below that, killing no one, as far as I can tell. And then through another compartment, and then into the fuel tanks, where oh. it continued to not explode, and straight through the bottom of the ship into the ocean below where it finally blew up. Hmm. Uh, the concussive force of that explosion did put two gaping holes in the hull, and nine crewmen drowned very quickly as nearby compartments were, like, rush-flooded with water. Hmm. Um, but the ship had protective bulkheads that could be sealed. You know, we talked about this with Titanic. You don't want the water to continue flowing through the bottom of the ship.
0: Yep, you gotta stop it at some point.
1: So they sealed up the bulkheads... And that allowed the flooded compartments uh, to hold, you know, any any water that had entered the ship. And um, Indianapolis was able to limp safely to a salvage ship for an emergency patch up. Uh, and, you know, it, it sort of l- listing slightly aft and uh, to its stern. Back and to the left.
0: Oh, great. Back and to the left. Thank you, Kevin Costner.
1: Uh, she would make it to the naval shipyard under her own power for repairs. And Indianapolis's next assignment wouldn't be for over three months, because they were really extensive repairs.
0: Yeah. There was a hole from the top to the bottom of the ship. No, uh, yes, basically. <laughs> <laughs> they, like a Looney Tunes-esque. They had patched it up, but yeah, it's... Well, uh, but I mean, you know. It's sputtering. It has like a sad
1: face on the front with X's oh. for eyes. Um... But boy, would that next assignment be a doozy when it finally came in. Because on July, because in July of 1945, Indianapolis was sent to Tinian Island in the, in the Marianas to make a delivery. Now, the men aboard the ship didn't know what the delivery was. They just had a big metal box that had a 24-7 guard of Marines around it. The Marine Guard also didn't know what was in the box.
0: When was this?
1: July of nineteen forty five. Okay. And inside that box was about half the world's supply of enriched uranium two hundred thirty five. Oh. And other parts that were necessary for the completion of the atomic bomb being built on Tinian, codenamed Little Boy.
0: Yeah, I think I would rather not know that I was escorting that.
1: Um because of the because of how big a target it paints on you,
0: or well, because of the, all the
1: deaths th- you're causing.
0: Oh, I was thinking like I would be afraid of Oh it blow volatility, up? <laughs> yes. Um You have to do obviously the rest is bad.
1: You have to like do something with it to make it blow. It doesn't just blow up. Okay. Although that do as far as I can tell, that do something is just smash it
0: into itself real hard. Yeah, that never happens on a ship.
1: <laughs> certainly not on the Indianapolis so far. <laughs> Now, now, there's been a lot of Manhattan Project coverage in my podcast feed recently. I don't know about yours, Carrie.
0: No, I think all over the place because of the whole Oppenheimer situation.
1: Exactly right. The, yes, the latest three-hour dirge-like epic <laughs> from Christopher Nolan, uh, which I am looking forward to very much.
0: Are we going to do a Barbenheimer, as people are calling it?
1: I don't know what that means.
0: It means going to see Barbie and Oppenheimer on the same day.
1: That feels... Double feature. Well, boy, what order do you go in?
0: Well, that's that's the real debate. I don't. I think I would do Oppenheimer, Barbie.
1: You think Barbie will turn turn spirits up after Oppenheimer brings them down?
0: See, whenever someone says to me, "I have good news and I have bad news," what do you want first? I always say bad news first. Yeah, but at the same time, it's like a little kind of like a like a little lime chaser to your tequila shot. You know? Yeah, I guess. So Barbie would be kind of the the lime chaser.
1: I I hear you, but at the same time. Why not end your night with a bang? Oh, boy. Well, the Manhattan Project is not the story we're telling here, but since 1942, the U.S. government had been racing to build an atomic bomb before Hitler and the Nazis could get there first. Mm -hmm. Uh, We had Robert Oppenheimer shaking and sweating in the Nevada desert, and they had uh, Heisenberg banging his head against a wall in a bunker in Berlin.
0: He is the one who knocks.
1: (laughs) Uh, By the time of the successful atomic American atomic bomb test, the Nazis had already been defeated. And meanwhile, the Japanese emperor was refusing to surrender in the face of months of U.S. firebombing of Japanese cities.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: So, Little Boy would be the first atomic weapon ever used in armed conflict on August 6th, 1945. (sighs) It would create a lethal shockwave 2.2 miles across followed by a firestorm almost as wide that would kill between sixty and 80,000 people. That's a hotly disputed number uh, with tens of thousands more casualties. Yeah, that's just from, immediate. Yeah, radiation sickness and cancer would kill tons of people later, too. Horrifying. But again, that's not the story we're telling here. And most of the men aboard the Indianapolis are not going to make it to August 6th. Oh. But for now, the crew could say, well, job well done. We dropped off whatever that was.
0: (laughs) That weird payload that had to go to a random island and was protected 24-7. That was chill.
1: Well, okay. So they swapped some men out of Guam and uh, headed to the Philippines to do some training. Now, a lot of times the directive given to... Navy pilots operating in this theater at this time was to, if the weather was good, i.e. submarines would have good visibility, just zigzag Eh, kind of all the time. It's up to you, you know, but we recommend zigzagging as much as you can. Mm -hmm. That is advice that Captain Charles...
0: Anytime I, I go from point A to point B, I'm zigzagging.
1: You're serpentine Absolutely. All, the, all the time. Can't catch me. You No, you saw that kid die on Game of Thrones. That You're was gonna... it.
0: I was done. I said he should have been zigzagging. Why am I not
1: zigzagging? Captain Charles McVeigh, like Rickon, did not serpentine that day, mm. opting instead to gr- go for broke, heading for Philippines as fast as he could in a straight line. Gotta zigzag it. He thought it would be fine. He didn't know there were Japanese subs operating in the area. But on July 30th, Around 12.15 in the morning, Indianapolis was struck on its starboard side by two Japanese torpedoes. Mm. Those torpedoes were fired by submarine I-58, captained by Moshitsura, Moshitsura Hashimoto, and he was just babysitting a popular U.S. shipping lane, and obviously had no idea of what Indianapolis's last mission was. Right. Um, but Indianapolis would be the only ship I-58 sunk during the war. And What a, what a hell of a ship to sink. Hell of a ship to sink, and uh, unbeknownst to Hashimoto, there was some measure of revenge for him here, because when he got home from the war, he would find out that his entire family was killed in the bombing of Hiroshima. Oh, Jesus. He later said that the sub crew held their breaths as he gave the order to fire all six of their torpedo tubes. As I said, two struck, and after the first one hit the bow, the crew was dead asleep.
0: What do you mean after? Like, Uh, they were still sleeping?
1: I should say just before Okay. (laughs) the first one hit the bow.
0: Because I slept through a flood once when I was young, Uh, and so I get it. I get the... The deep
1: sleep sort of thing. No no one was sleeping through this. This hit a 3,500-gallon fuel tank.
0: And it actually did something this time.
1: It immediately ignited into a 100-foot column of flame that could be seen uh, rising off the deck of the ship. Mm. Inside, all the lights went out right away. The bunks toppled over. You're in bunk beds. Mm-hmm. Not, not beds, like bunk hammocks, sort of, on these uh, boats. So all the bunks topple from the walls. Everyone is in a pile of limbs on the floor as they wake up. Some of them have broken arms and legs. They're pinned mm. under other guys. And then a second torpedo struck at midship. More fuel tanks, more powder magazines exploded, let, set off other fuel tanks and powder magazines, and the chain reaction would eventually rip a massive hole in Indianapolis's belly as the ship continued chugging along at the 12 knots or so it had been doing before. Wow. Dr. Lewis Haynes was the chief medical officer aboard uh, Indianapolis, and uh, his recollections, which he dictated years later, um, are pretty striking. I awoke. I was in the air. I saw a brief light before I felt the concussion of the explosion that threw me up in the air almost to the overhead. A torpedo had detonated under my room. I hit the edge of my bunk, hit the deck, and stood up. Then the second explosion knocked me down again. As I landed on the deck, I thought, I've got to get the hell out of here. I grabbed my life jacket and started to go out the door. My room was already on fire. I emerged to see my neighbor, Ken Stout. He said, let's go, and stepped ahead of me into the main passageway. I was very close to him when he yelled, look out, and threw his hands up. I lifted the life jacket in front of my face and stepped back. As I did, a wall of fire went whoosh. It burned my hair off, burned my face, and the back of my hands. That's the last I saw of Ken. Oh, God. I started out trying to go to the forward ladder to go up onto the foc'sle. There was a lot of fire coming up through the deck right in front of the dentist's room. That's when I realized I couldn't go forward and turned to go aft. As I did, I slipped and fell, landing on my hands. I got third-degree burns on my hands, my palm and all the tips of my fingers. I still have the scars. I was barefooted and the soles of my feet were burned off. Then I turned to go aft through the wardroom. I would have to go through the wardroom and down a long passageway to the quarter deck, but there was a terrible hazy smoke with a peculiar odor. I couldn't breathe and got lost in the wardroom. I kept bumping into furniture and finally fell into this big easy chair. I felt so comfortable. I knew I was dying, but I didn't really care. Mm. Then someone standing over me said, My god, I'm fainting, and he fell on me. Evidently, that gave me a shot of adrenaline and I forced my way up and out. Someone was yelling, open a porthole. All power was out and it was just a red haze. So that's the chaos you're waking. I mean, listen, none of us likes to wake up.
0: No. Well, you know, the thing about Titanic was that it was really a case of this sort of creeping dread that just compiled and compiled over two hours until they ended up in an icy hell. But this is really just immediate fiery terror just from the jump. You're you're asleep and then you're dying. I mean, those guys in the
1: like engine room of Titanic and down in those flooding well, compartments. yes, of course. Yes, you're right. And you had this thing in Titanic that we talked about, I think, where sometimes you'd have to seal off compartments that still had people inside. Yes. It was also that way with the Indian- Indianapolis as the crew had to start, just like with their kamikaze bombing, uh, you know, a few months before, they had to start sealing off the compartments that were getting flooded and that were going to be lost. Often, while men were still inside, men who were their friends mm-hmm. and who were screaming not to leave them.
0: Oh, that's so sad. It's horrifying.
1: Now, one of the sailors said the first thing he remembered after shaking out of his days uh, was a friend screaming from the room next door, and he but he couldn't get in and the whole thing was on fire and he just listened to his friend burning to death.
0: Oh, God.
1: Uh, It is not like Titanic, Carrie, in that this is not a long, slow, creeping sense of death.
0: Right. It's just immediately there all around you.
1: 12 minutes after torpedoes struck the ship, she turned over on her side and waves. uh, She's sinking the whole time. And also her, uh, it wasn't like Titanic where the back end went up into the air, Mm -hmm. the stern. uh, The bow rose up into the air as the back of the ship filled with water. Um, And then she rolled over and men were just thrown into the ocean. Uh, Some, you know, clambered over the ship as she rolled, but waves were rolling up now and washing people just off into the sea. Um, The bow would eventually get to about 60 feet in the air before coming down, just like Titanic. Mm -hmm. And there were men jumping from the top because what you don't want to do, and we talked about this in Titanic too, you don't want to be right next to the ship when it gets to the water because it's going to suck you down.
0: Right. And I think scientifically there has been some debate on how much of a suction tunnel there would be, but you certainly don't want to be like next to it. Yeah. Because, I mean, people could be landing on you as well. Um, Debris.
1: So guys are taking... Fire. Guys are taking swan dives. There were 1,100 men. 1,162, I think, is the number, uh, when the torpedoes hit. Um, There are... Dozens of men jumping off the bow, taking swan dives, some of them hitting the propellers, which are still powered and spinning. Oh, God. And just being sent, not chopped up, but just kunk, just sent spinning off into space. Uh, one so guy. it's not as
0: fun and whimsical as that one guy in Titanic.
1: I don't know if only you find that fun and whimsical. A
0: lot of people think that's a really, I mean, listen, it's horrifying, but it's the way it's fil- the foley, the foley, the little tink it's just, it's it's like when she throws the, the necklace and she goes, <coughs> like, it's just, mm, did we need the little zhuzh to it I to do make l- it a little more ridiculous?
1: I do like when the steam pipe falls on Fabrizio. That's a nice... That's because you hate Italians. Wait a second. I can't be accused of that. <laughs> um, as for the vacuum tunnel, Carrie, one guy did say he felt himself yanked down. His shoe was pulled off like someone was yanking on his foot. And then he was sucked down, wearing a life vest, sucked down to a depth where the pressure felt like it was going to blow his eyes and ears out uh, of his head.
0: I wonder because of the construction, I assume it was a smaller ship than Titanic. Maybe that's even worse, because it's more of like a concentrated suction. Could be. I don't know. I'm making that up. It, I didn't do well in science, but I, you know.
1: It's a warship. Maybe it's denser.
0: Yeah, the maybe. guns and stuff.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, so he was sucked down, and then an air bubble, he, like... Said he owed his life to this air bubble that randomly formed around him and sucked him back to the top, in, a, wow. in a, all in a rush, and shot him three feet out of the water's surface. Wow. And as he looked around, as he landed back in the water, the ocean everywhere was coated with two inches of oil from the sinking ship.
0: Which is on fire. In some places
1: yeah oh, yeah, the, oh, the ocean can catch on fire if it's coated in oil. Of course. and yeah. that wasn't as big a concern here as it could have been, but I think it was on fire in some places. just to add to the apocalyptic nature.
0: so they're in the middle of the ocean, right? There's no land around. Correct. and they're they were heading to the Philippines. where whereabouts are they at this point when they're sinking?
1: Um, they're still hundreds of miles away.
0: Do you know where in the ocean?
1: Uh, no, not exact. I can't give you latitude and longitude.
0: But it's just like, it's nowhere near any land.
1: No, they're between Guam and the Philippines. And the Pacific Ocean's really big.
0: <laughs> oh, yeah, I know. Yeah, okay. Yeah, oh, God. It's a nightmare.
1: So now the survivors were floating in warm tropical water. That's another difference from Titanic, Carrie. This water is about 80 degrees. Hmm. And that means there's no danger that you're going to freeze to death in minutes like a Jack Dawson.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But it does mean you're going to survive long enough to potentially die of thirst or heat stroke or starvation. It's not going to Or get...
0: any of the l- creatures that are in tropical waters.
1: Yes, which we'll get to momentarily. Yeah. Uh, let's be honest, no one's going to survive long enough to die of starvation in this situation. But, but yeah, you might die of thirst after a week of floating in this water. Mm-hmm. There was not a danger of Titanic. Now, about 300 men had died in the sinking.
0: Was anyone able to radio when this was happening? Like, did anyone know what had happened or vaguely where they were?
1: The crew sent out SOSs. Yeah, they had positioning and they okay. sent out SOS signals. Okay. But it was impossible to know if anyone had gotten them. Sure. So you don't know, <laughs> you know, you're just, right. you're just, it's the uncertainty of now floating in this oily water. And now there were about 900 survivors with not nearly enough life jackets, like just a couple hundred life jackets, 900 guys floating in the water, clinging to each other, clinging to debris. Um, some guys just floating off on their own in jackets. They were spread out over half a mile of open ocean. Hmm. And in the wee hours of the morning, they were calling to each other, trying to cross that that uh, kind of surf uh, to to get to each other. Many of the men were injured, obviously. Uh, many of them were burned or bleeding. Some of them grievously wounded from the shipwreck.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: one man said he found a friend whose eyes had been completely burned out. Oh, God. In his hands totally mangled. His hands would never work again. And it was obvious immediately that he wasn't going to survive, but the guy sort of, you know, brought him along and, and had him in, in their group. Anyway, even he was, he was doing the whole, I'm not going to make it just leave me thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but they got him onto a life raft. And I think it was the following day. He he gave that same guy a message for his wife before he died. Mm-hmm. So it's stuff like that's happening all over the water. And a lot of the men, in these early hours were vomiting constantly so violently that they were turning somersaults in the water. A sailor said, um, because they had been, it was impossible not to suck down salt water and diesel fuel as you were plummeting into the water. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah.
1: So that's a pretty, pretty hairy situation. These men find themselves in.
0: Yeah. That's one word for it.
1: And that's when the sharks started coming. Hundreds of them. As the oil began to separate and uh, float away, and there began to be clear patches in the water again, and you know how clear uh, Pacific Ocean water can be. Mm -hmm. The men looked down and saw dozens of sharks swimming meters below their feet.
0: Big sharks?
1: Big sharks.
2: Mm.
1: Yeah, tiger sharks, you know, are, are... six to nine feet long I think
2: mm-hmm.
1: and after a few hours those men could hear the screams of other men who the sharks had started to eat and they will endure this for days and we will return to them Carrie after we take a quick break okay <laughs> isn't it, isn't it exciting feeding time at the zoo Okay. Okay, Aquarium, you're right.
0: Let me introduce you to Barry Clue, an authorised financial advisor from New Zealand and a very special kind of stain on humanity.
2: that we're all taken care
0: of. A psychopath
1: is somebody who lacks empathy, acts impulsively. I think there's a strong case that Barry might be all of those things, actually.
0: To find out how Barry Clue stole over $15 million from
2: 81 victims, subscribe to Clueless, the long con. That's Clueless, spelt K-L-O-O-G-H-L-E-S-S.
1: Welcome back. When last we left you, the bedraggled crew of the USS Indianapolis. Bedraggled?
0: I think they were more than bedraggled.
1: Well, they had just been woken up from bed, and now they had been deposited into the warm waters of the Pacific Ocean, uh, many of them after losing friends, after suffering injuries themselves. Um, So yeah, bedraggled is maybe an understatement, (laughs) but it's part of the picture, is all I'm saying.
0: Uh, Okay. Not the first thing I'd notice. The
1: bedraggled, (laughs) injured, horrified men of the uh, USS Indianapolis were floating, um, some with life vests, some without, some just clinging to flotsam and jetsam from the wreckage. And just before we went to break, I revealed that hundreds, first dozens and then hundreds of sharks were being drawn to the area by the sound of the explosion Mm. and the fresh corpses in the water. Now, at first, the sharks would only go after those cadavers. But after a few hours, they started teaming up to pick up, teaming up to pick off individuals. Mm. And survivors said that the attacks multiplied as time went on. A few sailors described men being dragged through the water horizontally uh, at waist level by an unseen shark. Exactly, it's like Jaws at ex- the beginning.
2: Yeah. Exactly
1: like Jaws. Like the, There's no way Steven Spielberg didn't get that from this sailor's uh, account that I read. Yeah. Um, the initial wave of sharks, like I said, was drawn by the sound of the explosion, but as time went on, more sharks were attracted by the men's screams and struggles as they were picked off and the smell of blood in the water because sharks can detect blood and animal scents in the water from miles away. And a lot of these guys were losing a lot of blood. Mm. Sharks also have hairline receptors and nerves along the sides of their heads called the lateral line that give them basically D&D blindsight or (laughs) like daredevil senses Uh for hundreds of meters away. So if you're bleeding and thrashing, a shark basically has radar right to you.
0: Is that an echolocation thing or just it, bad it, luck?
1: It's more like there's little sensors that are that detect movement in the water. Mm. So you're so it's like when
0: you're in my periphery pawing around trying to find your keys or something.
1: Yeah, when you're intolerant of my disability.
0: Oh please. Folks, he has no disability.
1: It was I probably have ADHD.
0: It's not disability.
1: Undiagnosed
0: good lord men, self-diagnosed
1: men uh, started to catch on pretty quickly that it was safer to be together and they did their best to cling to one another or uh, cling to debris in groups ranging from dozens of men to over 300 uh, at one point
0: point. and they're just all in this why why was it safer that way were they just the sharks thinking it's just easier to pick off the stragglers?
1: Well, exactly, yeah. Shark isn't going to go after um, a bunch of guys who are on a big piece of uh, debris when there's, right, just a couple of yards away, just a guy floating in his one life vest or without a life vest. Mm-hmm. Um, one sailor apparently named a particularly large tiger shark Oscar because he kept seeing it. Um, and once it actually Oscar came close enough that he kicked at it and he tried to stab it with like a, a piece of debris he had, but the the shark got away. Um, but it didn't eat him. So, you know, fair enough to you.
0: Well, I think Oscar was like, you know what? That's why I'm out.
1: Yeah. But the sailor's like, and I wanted to kill that son of a bitch. He was mad. The shark got away rather than relieved that he survived. Um, I think
0: there's probably a little column A, a little column B.
1: So, yeah, the guys who were on the larger chunks of debris would have to fight off sharks that would jump, like, bodily onto the flotsam with them, and, you know, you'd have to kick and fight them off uh, as they tried to eat you. And sometimes they would succeed and just roll over with these guys back off into the sea.
0: Oh, God.
1: Some men would... This is another thing directly from Jaws. This is in Quint's speech. He talks about um, grabbing a friend and turning him, and, like, it's just... half of him the bottom half was gone men had that happen where like you you didn't even know your friend a a couple meters away had been eaten by sharks because Mm -hmm. everything above the water was still intact
0: you said there was a life raft at some point how many of those were there how many people were on them very
1: few Uh, I think probably less than, I mean, maybe there's half a dozen lifeboats that were actually launched before the ship went down. Mm -hmm. And so most of that life saving equipment that would have been aboard is is, uh, sucked to the bottom of the Pacific at this point. Mm -hmm.
0: Um, What's happening to the guys on the lifeboats? Are there fights of guys trying to get on those lifeboats?
1: Um, no, I think they're keeping a fair distance from the groups of other uh, the sailors, at least once they've got... But they, they're they at capacity. I mean, as right. many guys... But there's no sharks flopping onto the lifeboats. Um, no, I don't think so. Well, there, at
0: least there's that.
1: There is a real sense of camaraderie and <coughs> community spirit. I mean, maybe because of the military training or whatever, but there's not a lot of like fighting over... Debris or fighting over resources or everybody's trying to help everybody else throughout this, mm. which is nice, yeah in a horrible story mm-hmm. um, and maybe it was the hope, the feeling of hope that they had that was helping keep everybody together because they knew someone had to be looking for them and figured surely they would be recognized they would be rescued within a few hours uh, as the sun rose higher on that first day mm-hmm. and how long do you think it took before somebody started looking noticed the started. Indianapolis was missing and started looking for them?
0: Well, I guess did anyone get their SOS?
1: Um, I will spoil this is a sort of a spoiler for the end of the show, but yes, I, I uh, three three captains received their SOS at land stations.
0: Before rescue efforts go out, I don't know, a couple days.
1: Um Rescue efforts never began for the Indianapolis. What? No one was looking for them. Ever? Never.
0: How were they found?
1: Just random chance. Uh, it, there were these big boards at Naval Command in both Guam and the Philippines where they would track the positions of all the vessels that, like, that station was in command of at the time. hmm And so as they sailed out of Guam's area, the people at Guam took them off the board Oh, God. And the standard operating procedure was that you just put it on the board at its destination if nobody says it didn't arrive. Because, Uh like, hey, it's a big ship. We can't lose it, right? But no one was really looking for it. But nobody's really looking for it. Uh, There was a guy, Lieutenant Stuart B. Gordon, was the officer responsible for tracking Indianapolis from the Philippines, and he was apparently immediately aware that it was late, that it wasn't where it was supposed to be when it was supposed to be. But he made no effort ever to investigate this or report it up the chain of command.
0: Do we have any follow up with Gordon? Does uh, he, he ha- does he comment on this at any point? I
1: mean, he, he's just like I fucked up. Uh, that he was given a, a formal reprimand. He didn't. A like,
0: reprimand. Yeah, think Men lo- were eaten by sharks.
1: I don't think he lost his job or anything.
0: <sighs> okay.
1: Um, the distress calls, as I said, were received by three different shore stations. But one of those commanders was drunk. Another had ordered his men not to disturb him. And a third one thought it was just the Japanese playing a trick on him. And so, so it was
0: like the, the other boats that heard the SOS of the Titanic. It's like, eh, I'm going to bed.
1: And so none of them raised that to any higher <sighs> authority. God, and you have to remember this was a super secret plan—the uh, operation they had just carried out. So very few people were supposed to know where the Indianapolis had been, anyway.
0: Yeah, but they must—they must have known where they were going.
1: Yeah, but uh, they didn't necessarily know when they were going to show up exactly, <sighs> unless that was your assigned job, and that was Stuart Gordon's job.
0: I need to have a strong word with Stuart Gordon. Well,
1: he's probably, I, I haven't checked this, but I am going to go
0: to his grave. Yeah, this
1: is a very long time ago. Um, the U.S. Navy would revamp its whole apparatus for tracking and reporting ship movements because of this disaster. Like, yeah. a whole new protocol and everything. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, no help is coming. Uh. And day turned into night again. And night, they said, it was when the shark attacks would get really bad. And then daytime, the because sharks because
0: people wouldn't necessarily see them to know to fight back. Um,
1: yeah, I get, yeah, I think sharks just. Uh, I think I've also read things from shark experts saying I don't know. They they might have just been more afraid of sharks at night. And um, you know, it, it it's pretty hotly argued how many shark attacks. People often say this is the the biggest shark attack in history.
0: Like a mass. Yeah. shark attack because at
1: least dozens of men were killed by sharks.
0: Yeah, that's a lot.
1: Or at least a, at least a dozen is the lowest estimate anybody ever gives. The highest is 150 <sighs> over the course of this disaster. Um but there were other things killing them too. Many of the men had nothing to eat. Some had uh, found a snack package of crackers in the debris or a can of spam to share with their buddies. But nobody had any drinking water whatsoever.
0: Mm-hmm. And they're in salt water.
1: And they're in salt water, which, yes, is not drinkable, not potable.
0: And it's such torture. You're surrounded by nothing but water, and none of it you can drink.
1: And that's why by day three, people started drinking the salt yeah. water in droves.
0: Yeah, you, you you can't control it. It's your body just desperate for any hydration.
1: Um, some were resigned to death. And others were just crazed from thirst and saw their neighbors doing it and went like, well, I'm just thirsty. i got to get something in my mouth. Um, some who have just given up would swim away from the group and they would be taken by the sharks within a hundred yards.
0: Like suicide, basically. Just, oh God.
1: Our old friend, Dr. Haynes, the medical officer said, there was nothing I could do but give advice, bury the dead, save the life jackets.
0: You mean bury the dead?
1: You know, as a burial at sea. They would say a little prayer and... Like, just
0: push them away?
1: We'll let them... Yeah, we'll take the life vest off, essentially, and let them drift down.
0: Oh, yeah. Jack Dawson style.
1: And try to keep the men from drinking the salt water when we drifted out of the fuel oil. When the hot sun came up and we were in this crystal clear water, you were so thirsty you couldn't believe it wasn't good enough to drink. I had a hard time convincing the men they shouldn't drink. The real young ones. You take away their hope. You take away their water and food. They would drink salt water, and then they would go fast. I can remember striking men who were drinking water to try and stop them. They would get diarrhea, then get more dehydrated, and then come and then become very maniacal.
0: Maniacal?
1: In the beginning, we tried to hold them and support them while they were thrashing around. And then we found we were losing a good man to get rid of one who had been bad and drank, as terrible as it may sound. Toward the end, when they did this, we shoved them away from the pack because we had to.
0: Wow. Imagine having to make those calls.
1: Yeah. And uh, by that time, on day three, another 300 men had succumbed to either their injuries from the initial sinking or exposure uh, or shark attack now. And this is when the suicides began. Uh, and as so this I said... Is,
0: so are there other suicides aside from guys just letting the sharks take them?
1: Uh, that's usually what happens. Um, some would just take off their vests and let themselves sink they say that, that other guys would tilt forward with their vests on and just do their best to drown themselves floating upside oh down.
0: God.
1: As their friends, like right next to their friends and their friends are trying to fl- like going, what are you doing? Are you straight, you know, flipping, trying to flip them back up and shaking them. And
0: So how many men went into the water? I, I know he says it sometime in the speech. Men went into the
1: water, only came out. About yeah. 900 men went in
0: went in alive or they were
1: just alive. That's after 300 had died in the sinking.
0: Yeah. Okay. Okay. And how, how much time has passed at this point?
1: Three days. It's Mm -hmm. Wednesday. Okay. And 300 more men have died uh, at least. I mean, they're dying throughout the day and now they're dying in greater numbers. Um, As you kind of heard Haynes allude to there, some of the men's minds would break violently and they would start kind of attacking their comrades or at least endangering their lives when they would come and try to help them. Mm -hmm. Um, Some men seemed to be having hallucinations, that there were enemies everywhere. Uh, I mean, there were. They're sharks. And these things, like the drinking saltwater thing, would kind of start with one guy and then seem to spread around him, Mm -hmm. like little mass hysteria incidents. And uh, one sailor, this guy named Stanton, says, uh, and one sailor says about 50 guys were killed by their friends in one 15-minute incident of mass hysteria.
0: When do you mean killed by their friends?
1: It like 50 men started going crazy and, and attacking their, their friends nearby.
0: Because they were hallucinating that they were enemies. Yeah. And, like, drowning them, or... Yeah. Jesus Christ.
1: Yeah, I mean, if you're struggling out in open ocean, you're both in these life vests. People just people just end up dying. <sighs> So 50 guys died that way, according to this one account. And uh, Haynes had said earlier there, the burial at sea thing. So obviously, as men are lost, you, have to take, you need their life vests. Mm-hmm. And so you would take the vest and, and let them go to the sharks, basically. Um, rejoining Dr. Haynes here. I began to find the wounded and dead. The only way I could tell they were dead was to put my finger in their eye. If their pupils were dilated and they didn't blink, I assumed they were dead. We would then laboriously take off their life jacket and give it to men who didn't have jackets. In the beginning, I took off their dog tags, said the Lord's Prayer, and let them go. Eventually, I got such an armful of dog tags, I couldn't hold them any longer.
0: Oh, God.
1: Even today, when I try to say the Lord's Prayer or I hear it, I just lose it.
0: Talk about trauma.
1: Now, all of those life vests, by the way, were rated for two to three days of flotation. And here they were getting into late afternoon on a very long third day. Mm -hmm. And as day four approached, the jackets felt soggy, squishy, and waterlogged. And the men were floating visibly, noticeably lower in the water. And now the salt is lapping around their chins as they they float. Mm -hmm. They knew they just didn't have long. And it was late in the morning, Thursday, August 2nd, at around 1025, when they were finally spotted, by chance, by a Navy pilot on patrol. His name was Wilbur Chuck Gwynn.
0: We love Chuck Gwyn here. Well,
1: apparently this might not have happened if he didn't have a sore neck. Because he was like laying down in his plane. He had the co-pilot take over and he was like laying down and, and trying to fix a crick in his neck when he saw the rafts. Wow. Uh, So they dropped a couple of life rafts and a radio from... Uh, for the, it was a bomber, uh, they're, the plane they were flying. They dropped, not bombs, but <laughs> a couple of life rafts and a radio. And uh, they radioed for more help.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And so Dr. Haynes and the boys put the sickest guys they had on the rafts. And then as many of the others, as was safe, clung to the edges. Kind of like they had been doing with what lifeboats they had. Mm-hmm. And the men got their first sip literally sip because there was you know they could only drop so much uh so they each got their first sip of water since sunday night wow and all capable air and surface units dispatched but they were waiting a while before lieutenant commander robert adrian marks arrived that afternoon in a pby 5a catalina seaplane Bob Marks. Bob Marks. Well, yeah, uh, that's my grandfather's name, everybody. <laughs> um, but actually, when you read about this guy, he go he went by Adrian, I think.
2: Mm. Adrian!
1: Yeah. Um, and Adrian had some life rafts in his plane because he knew what he was coming here to do. Mm-hmm. So he dropped them. But one was destroyed on impact, just like the heavy surf in mm-hmm. the uh, distance of the fall. And others were carried away by the wind and landed so far away that they were just useless.
0: None of them got to any guys? None of his
1: rafts were helpful.
0: Jesus. And
1: so Marx, there was a standing order, don't land these planes on open ocean because we're pretty sure it'll break the plane. Don't do it.
0: They're not seaplanes.
1: No, it was a seaplane. Oh. But you're not supposed to land it on open
0: ocean. No, no. It's like a lake.
1: Yeah. (laughs) It's, uh, It's a little choppy out there.
0: A little choppy out there.
1: So Adrian Marx took a vote of his crew and got unanimous permission from everybody to attempt the landing against orders. Wow. And he would later say that he was stunned when they first got to the site, actually, and he saw just the sheer number of men clinging to oily debris on the open ocean below. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Mark said, When we landed, we realized we couldn't rescue everyone. We would have to make heartbreaking decisions. Uh, The rescuers focused on the single men in life vests first, as they just taxied the seaplane through the 12-foot ocean swells. Holy shit. uh, From guy to guy, pulling men aboard. And in all, Marks and his crew pulled 56 sailors, who at this point looked like just bleary-eyed skeletons. Wow. Out of the, the ocean. Guys just totally blank faces, you know? Um... And when they ran out of room inside the plane, Marks got out and started tying guys to the wings with, par-
0: Holy shit. with
1: parachute cord.
0: This guy is awesome.
1: Uh, Yeah. And they were right, by the way, not to or to order these planes not to land on open ocean because it was unflyable now. So he basically has a shitty boat <laughs> with wow. wings with wings full of guys. And he's just uh, puttering around the, the debris out there with his searchlight on just so any uh, further rescuers it can, help. can yeah. get there. Um, and they were rushing to finish their works. So they hadn't gotten there till the afternoon. This this kind of thing takes hours. And again, nighttime is when the sharks started hunting again. Mm. And as the sun got lower in the sky, rescue crews saw they saw said they saw sharks continue to pull exhausted men off the edges of rafts. God, and imagine debris.
0: the rescuers are there, or you're the rescuers, and this is happening in front of you, and there's nothing <laughs> anyone can do.
1: And then out of the twilight was a light on the horizon as the destroyer USS Cecil J. Doyle arrived. That would be the first of seven rescue ships. Um, And after all the remaining survivors had finally been picked up, Cecil J. Doyle sank Adrian Marks' now unflyable plane, and everybody tootled on home. Wow. Of 1,195 souls aboard when she set out for the Philippines... Indianapolis had 316 survivors, Uh, although two more died shortly after. Robert Lee Shipman died the following day and Frederick Harrison the day after that.
0: I'm shocked more didn't.
1: So 314 survivors. Wow. And among them was Captain Charles B. McVeigh, who was one of the last to abandon ship and who now repeatedly made a bunch of noise around the Navy asking why it took four days. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. To find or even start looking for him.
0: Or even know they were
1: missing. And his men and his ship. Uh, the Navy, by the way, for years claimed falsely that there was no SOS received. Shocking. And McVeigh, for his trouble, was court-martialed. What? Oh, yeah. For what? On In November 1945, so very shortly after, he was court-martialed on charges of failing to order his men to abandon ship.
0: They were on fire actively.
1: And uh, hazarding the ship by failing to do the little zigzags.
0: Now that's correct, but uh, you know, I think he's done his time.
1: Well, he would end up as you, you know, your reaction I think was similar to the uh, court-martial's reaction because he would clear the failure to order abandoned ship charge pretty easily. Uh, now on hazarding the ship... McVeigh's orders, the orders he'd been given, were to, quote, zigzag at your discretion, weather permitting. Mm -hmm. And so they brought in a bunch of people to talk about how effective zigzagging was and to establish whether he had been zigzagging. The star witness of the court-martial was none other than Japanese Commander Moshitsura Hashimoto. That must have been awkward. The former captain of submarine I-58. Yeah, I mean... He's the guy who blew up your your ship and killed all of your buddies, and you're the guy who delivered the bomb that killed his family. Wow. Hashimoto was flown to California as a naval officer, not a POW, but he was kept under guard the whole time he was and not allowed to leave his hotel room because uh, there was a big media stir, and U.S., um, well, at least white people in the U.S. were not big
0: fans of the Japanese... Well, I don't even think it's it's a race thing. It, he's the one who, who blew up the ship.
1: Yeah, but also, like, the, Jap- the trials for the Japanese war crimes were just starting. So, like, anti-Japanese sentiment was was Right, but I mean, high.
0: specifically anti-this guy, I would understand.
1: Sure. <laughs> he was just doing his job. He, he was I know, not in, like, a but... Nazi way. He was just blowing up a warship in a war.
0: <sighs> yeah, I know. It's just, it's a lot.
1: Hashimoto testified that visibility was good the night of July 29th, and he spotted the ship easily as it came over the horizon. He testified that McVeigh definitely wasn't zigzagging. He was like, nope, very, very straight, straight straight as an arrow. Um, But he also said that from the position he was firing, zigzagging wouldn't have done the ship any good. He was basically going to hit his target no matter what. Mm -hmm. And he added that, honestly, guys, the zigzag thing doesn't work as well as you think it does.
0: Well, you're doing it pretty slowly, right? They, in a ship that you are, size.
1: You are doing it pretty slowly. And if, say, the submarine is in front of you, then all you're doing when you turn is giving it a, a broader target. And you don't know which angle your unseen attacker is, is uh, going to be shooting from. Mm-hmm. So uh, several American sub-experts actually also testified at the court-martial to that same effect. Like, yeah, it's not actually that good. I don't know why we do it. <laughs> um, it was also argued on McVeigh's behalf that, number one... He had actually requested a destroyer escort for Indianapolis, which was traveling alone when it was hit by the sub. hmm But the fleet was spread thin in the wake of the Okinawa invasion, and the command opted to hold their destroyers back for higher-value targets. <sighs> And on July 24th, six days earlier, the destroyer USS Underhill had been attacked and destroyed by Japanese subs just a couple of miles away from where Indianapolis would end up being attacked. But nobody had bothered mentioning to McVeigh that there might be subs operating in the area.
0: Okay. That's crazy.
1: (laughs) It's not. Yeah, it's not great. If I was him, I'd be pretty mad, especially when I was found guilty And busted down a couple ranks and taken off active duty forever.
0: Holy shit. Now... don't you think he already felt guilty enough? Like, he... Time served.
1: Yeah, you... The time in in the shark
0: water is time served. He literally did... Went through... Hell.
1: Yeah, there's nothing worse you could go through. You're right, time served, yep. That's it. You know, sometimes... Now... To put it in more perspective, Carrie, of 380 U.S. Navy ships lost in World War II, how many captains do you think were court-martialed for the loss of their ships? One. Yes.
0: Fucking knew it. That's so messed up.
1: Yeah, I mean, he was basically an obvious fall guy for what is the most notorious disaster in U.S. Navy history.
0: Talk about a Patsy.
1: And it's such an institutional failing because nobody told him about the Mul- subs.
0: Multiple layers of the institution. Multiple people fucked up their jobs. And this is the guy that went down for it. The guy who was in the water watching people be eaten. Like, ugh, sick. It's sick.
1: It is sick, and that's partly why Admiral Charles Nimitz himself would remit the sentence and restore McVeigh to active duty, and he was promoted to Rear Admiral before he retired in
0: 1949. Good.
1: But it's not all sunshine and rainbows. McVeigh was, as you say, hounded with guilt and responsibility for the rest of his life, Mm -hmm. Uh, and that was exacerbated by the periodic hate mail And phone calls he got for the rest of his life from the families of the victims of the Indianapolis. And I will directly quote one Christmas card he received here. This is decades after. Merry Christmas. Our family's holiday would be a lot merrier if you hadn't killed my son. Wow. And McVeigh would keep notes like this in his desk for the rest of his life. Which ended on November 6th, 1968, when he shot himself with a Colt Officer's Model Target 38 Special. That's a Target pistol. It wasn't his service weapon. People sometimes say it was his service yeah. revolver, which it wasn't. Um, alone on his back porch, and he would be found there a little while later by his gardener. There was no note, but. Yeah. He was. I mean,
0: people grieving, especially in something so horrific, um, you know, you can't you can rail against the government uh, for failing and you can rail against Japan's government for shooting. But you know, you can't say to send a hate letter to Japan. No. So I, people who are grieving, I can't, I can't blame them, but it's really, it's, it's awful. What happened to that man?
1: He was uh, 70 years old when he died uh, and he had been living with the Indianapolis thing for over 20 years and uh, also with his wife's death for the last seven. She had passed from cancer in 1961. Oh, God. So his friend said he had been terribly, terribly lonely after that. Yeah. Little little post note. Uh, on October 30th, 2000, Bill Clinton signed an act of Congress exonerating Charles McVeigh posthumously. going to
0: exonerate him.
1: And that was five days after the death of Commander Moshitsura Hashimoto. Wow. In one last little bringing together of those two men's lives.
0: It's a wild story, Sean.
1: That is the USS Indianapolis. Isn't that a great uh, story? And I think it's so clearly inspired the novel Jaws. It's certainly so aspects. Yes, Inspired. Uh, like somebody must have been hearing about the Indianapolis thing and went like, God, sharks are scary. Well,
0: um, when did Jaws, the novel come out? I know the movie came out in 75. So if the novel came out within a few years before that, that's pretty soon after the captain killed himself. So that might've been somewhat in the news or on Peter Benchley, the author's mind. That when could, he wrote Jaws, that could
1: be. He uh, lived
0: lived in Connecticut, by the way. Somewhere. Peter Benchley. No, uh, uh, McVeigh. Oh, hmm. horrible story! Great uh, movie, horrible story.
1: So uh, yeah, that's the that's the Indianapolis. It, this this story has it's a it's a Stefan. This story has everything:
2: <laughs>
1: sharks, fire, <laughs> diarrhea, diarrhea, um, death from
0: thirst, court martials.
1: Nobody actually died of thirst, though. I guess they died from uh, drinking salt water because they were too thirsty.
0: Well, it's a it's a byproduct of thirst, I guess.
1: Yeah. Well,
0: that's horrible. Um, horrible story, Sean. Thank you.
1: <laughs> yeah. No. No problem at all. Um, it's not a war story, right? It is a disaster movie.
0: Yes. It, it is start It starts out as a war story, and then you you get a twist, a Shyamalan esque twist in the middle there.
1: Uh, why no movie? Or maybe there is, and it just it uh, yeah. is, is old or. Maybe it did be disrespectful to... Um, I'm
0: sure that's that's something that would be very difficult to film as well. Because... Most of the time you're on open water.
1: Oh, yeah. You mean production-wise?
0: Yeah. And, you know, I wonder if it's difficult at this point. You, you can't show a bunch of sharks all the time, right? But obviously there were a bunch of sharks all the time in this case. So if you're trying to shoot around having to show a shark it might seem derivative of Jaws, which they were doing that, but because their animatronic shark was broken half the time.
1: Right. Or you get a bunch of actors acting against tennis balls and that's the true
0: horror. I'm sure there's something out there that depicts this, but you know, the, the amount that Robert Shaw conveys just in the dialogue um, about the horror and, devastation of the whole situation. You almost don't need a movie. Um, Cause you can never really capture it. Could you?
1: No. Um, I pulled from a bunch of different sources for this. So I guess just thanks to the Smithsonian and Dan Carlin and military.com and the U S Navy and the USS Indianapolis national memorial, how stuff works uh, Connecticut magazine. I even looked at an mm-hmm. article from there about uh, Captain McVeigh's unfortunate suicide.
0: Yeah, and uh, if you haven't, go watch Jaws. It would be <laughs> wild if you haven't. Well, um, well, you know, some people are, you know, kind of, they think it's a horror, or but, you know.
1: Well, I, I wonder, Carrie, do, do you think, I, I, I do feel like everyone our age has seen Jaws for the most part?
0: Unless, unless they have fears, you know, they don't like scary movies. And or it, it came or. out
1: a long time before we were born. Yeah. Uh, do you suppose the generation, do you suppose these Gen Z... Hey, hey, Gen Z listeners, get at us. There are two of you, I <laughs> have, think.
0: Have they seen Jaws? I'm sure. I'm sure every film nerd goes through the motions of finding these films, no matter how much older they are. Yeah, but
1: have all of them seen it?
0: No, but not all of the millennials have seen it either. I think we probably have a closer link to it because our parents watched it when they were younger, um, and they have these memories. Like My dad was telling me that the summer that Jaws came out, you know, out in Long Island where my family goes in the summer, no one was in the ocean <laughs> and it's not really an ocean. It's a bay. So there are no sharks. There have been like one or two sand sharks seen ever, which are just like the size of big fish. Yeah. Um, no one's going to get a great white in the bay of Long Island, but people just would not go in the water that summer. And so I think our parents have those memories of Jaws mania, because this was the first blockbuster film. I think we lose sight of that sometimes. Um, Summer blockbusters were not really a thing until Jaws, because it was so tied into summer and the 4th of July and, you know, going to the beach and everything. It was such a summer event movie um, that it really impacted everyone. It was similar to what happened with the exorcist and like, the craze about people going, you know, needing ambulances and passing out during the movie because it was so scary. It
1: also inspired um, uh, shark killings, so waves of shark killings yeah. uh, out of fear that I think continues to some degree to this day.
0: Yeah, Peter Benchley, the author of Jaws, said he he really regretted, I mean, how much did he really regret it uh, with all the money he made from it? But he said he really regretted making the shark, you know, the bad guy because... He ended up becoming like a shark conservationist or whatever because of what he had contributed to, which is people sort of preemptively murdering sharks yeah, which it, which don't tend to go after people specifically.
1: Right, he married into a shark family, isn't that right? His kids are all half shark.
0: What what do you mean? <laughs>
2: ohio-mysteries.com
0: It's true crime time. I thought this would be an appropriate uh why did I say appropriate? Appropriate story to discuss since we were just there, Sean. Last week, a tourist. Vi- Last week, fuck <laughs> off. Last week, a tourist visiting Rome's famous Colosseum made headlines after being spotted carving Ivan plus Haley twenty three into a wall at the two thousand year old landmark using a key.
1: At least you got to disguise it. You got to carve like Ivan and Haley. Oh, one. Yes, but like the f- just one. <laughs>
0: Uh, a fellow tourist took a video of the man, which led to widespread condemnation of the act from Italian officials and a just-as-widespread search for the heartsick tourist. Somehow, authorities reportedly determined a man named Ivan Dimitrov, visiting the country from England, was the one captured doing the dirty deed. Dimitrov is a 27-year-old fitness instructor with apparent criminal passion for his girlfriend, Haley. By the time Dimitrov was identified, he had already returned to his home in Bristol. Prove it then, innit? (laughs) However, Italian authorities still informed him that he's being investigated for his actions and could face a fine of up to $15,000, as well as up to five years in prison. Boy, I don't care. Find me, copper. I love (laughs) Ailey. Still. (laughs) Uh, he actually subsequently wrote a letter to the mayor of Rome, Roberto Gualtieri, to express his remorse and probably to keep his ass out of jail. Quote, through these lines, I would like to address my heartfelt and honest apologies to the Italians and to the whole world for the damaged cause to an asset, which, in fact, is the heritage of all humanity, he added. He wrote in the letter published in Il Messaggero on Wednesday. He also praised those who guard the inestimable historical and artistic value of the Colosseum with dedication, (laughs) care, and sacrifice. He's
1: landing on a little bit thick.
0: Before adding, quote, it is with deep embarrassment that only after... What regrettably happened did I learn of the antiquity of the monument, which Wait. I call bull and shit. He didn't know that it was ancient? I'm sure he did. Yeah. Look at it. Why were he, Also, why was he there? If he didn't know. I mean, he's certainly not doing the audio tour. He's too busy carving into the wall.
1: He's like, oh, this you, this is a great <laughs> arena where no shows happen.
0: Ever. Especially not in the past. Dimitrov's girlfriend, Haley, who I'm sure is mortified, is not under investigation for the act, but apparently, according to the Italian media, she could be considered an accessory and tried, though I seriously doubt that would actually come to pass.
1: This is a, a Judge Janine Pirro, <laughs> Italian Judge Janine. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> Dimitrov's lawyer, Alexandro Maria Tirelli, told Il Messaggero, quote, the boy is the prototype of the foreigner who frivolously believes that anything is allowed in Italy, even the type of act which in their own countries would be severely punished. So he's kind of like, yeah, he's an asshole, but don't put him in prison for it. Right. So.
1: I mean, yeah, I, that's, uh, yes, I agree. Don't put him in prison for it. <laughs> also, he's an asshole. He can yeah. buff that out. Buff it out. Buff it out, buff it in.
0: <laughs> Let me begin. <laughs> what are you talking about? It's hot the in House here. of Pain. <laughs> okay. That's it for this episode of Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Ain't It Scary, and check out our website at ain'titscary.com. You can support the show by supporting our sponsors and becoming a patron at www.patreon.com slash scary. You can call us and leave a message at our Google Voice number, 203-666-5529. And please subscribe to the show and throw us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and also now on Spotify. We'll be forever grateful. Also, thanks to our listeners on Patreon and Instagram who came down firmly on my side about it being fine using the fan during recording so I don't melt into a puddle like the Wicked Witch of the West. Yes. Y'all are the real ones.
1: In, in the edit, I was it was immediately clear to me. <laughs> That that you were going to win on that one.
0: And I promise those are the only kinds of uh, arguments we'll ever ask you, the listener, to rule in favor of on either side for. So don't worry, we're not going to put any uh, intense marital disagreement on your shoulders.
1: No, although that uh, movie poster contest got pretty spicy. Remember our Christmas movie poster
0: contest? Oh, yes. But I won that one too, so...
1: Yeah. Yeah. Special thanks to those of you who voted uh, Carrie's answers on uh, both of those <laughs> no. topics. And special thanks to those of you in our top two tiers on Patreon Nate Curtis, Sean O'Donnell, Jared Chamberlain, Maria Ferrante, Robin McCabe, Comfy Mike, Alex Nakutis, Ryan Regan, Christy Atchison, Kate Pope, Haley, Aussie Sean Downs, Ryan. Ryan, Enrique, and Derek. Thank you, guys. We love you very much. See you next Thursday. Show created by Sean and Carrie McCabe. Music by Kyle Ryan. You can find Kyle at his YouTube channel, Music is a Verb.
0: Ain't It Scary has been brought to you by Killer Podcasts and is a production of Longboy Media.
2: So when the scammer uses the hypnotic method of building rapport, then they create dysfunctional, delusional reality. people who run the cons. So we go to your bank, you go in and get 6,000 cash, give us each 3,000, we give you this. Uh You go home and what you find out is cut up newspaper. It's fun to know how the trick is done and that's what Scams and Cons is all about. Listen at scamsandcons.com or wherever fine podcasts are found.